following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. All right, now if you've been following along in Daniel, if you've been reading through Daniel as we've been uh, working through it, you might notice something strange at the beginning of this chapter. I don't know whether you caught it, but at the beginning of chapter 5, we're suddenly introduced to this new king, King Belshazzar, Uh, whereas in chapters 1 to 4, the king is Nebuchadnezzar, he's the ruling monarch of Babylon, and then suddenly you get to chapter 5, and then without any warning, we suddenly unexpectedly meet King Belshazzar. So what's happened here? Well, in between chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Daniel, you've got a gap of about 60 years. Now, you don't, you don't read that explicitly in here, but historically that's what's happened. You might even want to write that in the margin of your Bible if it's helpful. A 60 years gap between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar uh, has passed away, and there have been four kings after him before you get to Belshazzar. So even though Belshazzar calls Nebuchadnezzar, his father, he's really talking about him as a father figure because Belshazzar wasn't a blood relation of Nebuchadnezzar at all, and he came quite a way down the track. So there's quite a disconnection uh, between these two kings, and there's quite a long lapse in time. So you've got to understand that what's happened here is that we've really moved now from the beginning of Israel's exile, uh, when Daniel and the exiles first come into Babylon, now to quite near the end of Israel's exile, 60 years later. So there's quite a fast forward that's happened here. And we have moved to a point now, we're right at the end of the empire of Babylon. The entire kingdom of Babylon is about to crumble because you read at the end of that chapter, do you remember when Amanda was reading, at the end, that very night, the very night this story takes place, Belshazzar is killed. And Darius the Mede, he's not a Babylonian, he's the king of a completely different empire. He's a Persian. He takes over Babylon. So this is the moment when the empire of Babylon falls. It's actually quite an an important, pivotal moment in history. The kingdom of Babylon, this very night, crumbles and is conquered by the Persian empire. And then the Persians take over Babylon. They become the dominant superpower in the region. So we're at quite an interesting intersection here in history. And so for the Jewish people, this signaled a point when the the end of their exile was fairly near. And probably for Belshazzar, King Belshazzar, some people believe, because he probably would have known what was going on. In a sense, he would have seen the writing on the wall before the writing was on the wall, if you know what I mean. I think he probably knew his days were numbered before his days were actually numbered. So he would have known that the Persians were close. He would have known that there was trouble brewing. And some people believe that's the reason that he threw this massive party. That this is kind of like a last supper for Belshazzar. That he knows things are about to go pear-shaped. He knows the kingdom is about to crumble. That he's about to be killed because that's what happened to kings that were conquered, generally. And so he just throws this last big kind of let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of party, just throws it all, throws caution to the wind, just lets it all go and just has this rollicking good time. That's probably what's happened here. And so he just has this massive party. He gets a thousand of his nobles together. He gets all his wives and his concubines. Goodness knows how many of them there were, but they're all there. Everyone's just having this fantastic time and he's just letting it all go. And then in the middle of that party, He does this blasphemous thing. He asks for the goblets that were taken from the Jewish temple to be brought in. 
and they, they use them to drink wine and they praise the gods of iron and stone and bronze and basically make these things into idols, which is utterly blasphemous. If you remember back to Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar had gone into the Jewish temple, which was bad enough in itself, defiling himself by entering this Jewish holy place, and then he'd stolen these vessels from the temple, stolen the items, these goblets, carted them off to Babylon, and now at the height of the party, Belshazzar says, why don't you bring out those goblets? And let's just use them to get drunk. And let's just have a great old time with these and kind of pretend that they are gods. This is complete sacrilege. This is total blasphemy. But Belshazzar doesn't care. He he doesn't give a rip about Israel's God at this point. He knows probably he's going down. And so he's just letting it all fly off the handle. And then God intervenes and does this extraordinary thing where a human hand appears and writes on the wall, on the plaster wall of the royal palace, these four words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And Rembrandt, the painter, actually captured this moment beautifully when Belshazzar looks up and he sees this writing on the wall. If you have a chance to look at that painting uh, on Google Images, it's, the detail is just spectacular there. But just this look of astonishment in Belshazzar's face. The painting's called Belshazzar's Feast. And you see some of his nobles and wives and concubines and so on around him. And then just everybody's terrified looking at these words on the wall. Because it seems like nobody could read these words, which is interesting because they were written in Aramaic. And Aramaic was the dominant language that was spoken in Babylon at the time. So the first question that comes up in this passage is, why could nobody read the words? They were in Aramaic, everybody spoke Aramaic, what's the problem? Well, we don't know, but there's a few interesting theories on this. One of the leading theories is that maybe these words were kind of written in an abbreviated form, that they were possibly a truncated version of these words, kind of like the root word from which you can get a few different words, uh, which explains why one of them is taken as a singular and a plural word later on. It might have been these abbreviated forms. Probably the closest parallel you could get to that today is text language. So, you know, when you're texting someone, especially teenagers, you're just writing all this stuff, you're abbreviating words all the time, using these weird, and maybe people can understand what you're talking about, maybe they can't, who cares, because you know what you mean, right? That's all that matters. So let's just, let's just do this as an example, okay? This is a contemporary version of Belshazzar's Feast. Now imagine, here we are all gathered here, and this writing appears on the wall, okay? So here's a text message here. Now just for a minute, just look at that and imagine that the hand of God has written this text message on the wall, how are we going to understand this, this code language that's been used here? Well, we've got the translation, thankfully, to help you. So the message actually says, my summer holidays were a complete waste of time. Before, we used to go to New York to see my brother, his girlfriend, and their three screaming kids, that's what that little icon is, face to face. I love New York, it's a great place. So it's possible that what we've got here and Daniel 5 is the first example of God communicating through a text message, okay? That might be what's going on. I only say that because it's, it's kind of comparable, maybe, to the way in which this all happened. Somehow, these words were written, and even though they were in Aramaic, people couldn't understand them. Somehow, you needed to have some inside knowledge or some spiritual insight or whatever it was to actually understand the, uh, the words that God wrote on the wall. And so then the story progresses, and you have Daniel, and this is, this is becoming a pretty familiar refrain now in the book of Daniel. Daniel comes forward, and he's the only one 
who can actually read these words and can provide the interpretation of these words, which is obviously much more important than knowing what, they, what the words themselves were. So he correctly identifies the words, he reads the words, and he knows that the words are mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Now, just in and of themselves, those words are just units of currency. That's each of them are just units of currency, common in Babylon. Uh, the mene is a minor, that's a unit of currency, about 500 grams, quite a significant amount of um, gold or silver, whatever it was. Uh, tekel means a shekel, so a much smaller unit of currency, about 10 grams. Uh, and they still have, by the way, the shekel, the Israeli shekel today, still use it in Israel. And then the peres, which is just the singular of parsin. That's why the words are slightly different there. And that's a half shekel, so an even smaller unit of currency. So at one level, what God has done is just written on the wall three units of money. And that in itself doesn't really help us understand what he's saying, what he's meaning. But then Daniel goes on and provides the interpretation of this. And the way that he does this is by identifying that each of these words have a second meaning. Just like words in English have a, often have two meanings, these three Aramaic words had a second meaning, and that taps into the deeper meaning of what's going on. So mene, as well as being a minor, it means numbered. And tekel, as well as being a shekel, it means weighed. And peres, as well as being a half shekel, it means divided or separated. Is probably a better way of thinking about that word. Not so much one thing being divided in half, but something being separated from something else. Something being separated from you. And so then we're starting to catch what's going on here. And Daniel says to Belshazzar, those words describe you. You, your days are numbered. King Belshazzar, your reign has been brought to an end. Your days are numbered. Your time has been cut short. You have been weighed. You've been weighed on the scales of God's justice, Belshazzar, and you have been found wanting. You've been found not weighty enough. You've been found guilty. And then Parsin, you are going to be divided or your kingdom will be separated from you. And that's exactly what happened. This prophecy was fulfilled that very night, Belshazzar's Reign was cut short, his days ended, his days were numbered, he was weighed, he was judged by God, and as a result of that, his kingdom was separated from him and given to the Persians, given to the Medes and the Persians. And that was the end of Belshazzar. So when you step back from that story, and if you look at it just at the level of history and what's going on, there's, there's a really interesting thing happening here. There's a reversal of history. Because if you think back to the beginning of the book of Daniel, when Israel first came into exile, Israel was the nation that was judged by God. Israel was sent into it. In a sense, Israel's days were numbered. And Israel was judged and weighed. And Israel was separated from its land. That's how the whole story of Daniel begins, with Israel coming under God's judgment because of their disobedience, and they were sent away into exile. They experienced this being sent out of their land. But now, 60 years later, God's judgment falls on the nation of Babylon. Now things have come full circle, and it's Babylon, this evil, idolatrous, prideful, blasphemous empire. That empire and that king now comes under the judgment of God. That kingdom now, its days are numbered. That kingdom is weighed, and that kingdom is, is taken away. It is conquered, and it's given over to the Persian king and the Persian empire, which is a far more lenient kingdom. 
in terms of the treatment of Israel, a far more hospitable kingdom. It's under the Persians that Israel is allowed to return home. They've got a completely different foreign policy, and they allow the Israelites to return home. So from the perspective of God's people, this is good news. That just as Israel was judged, now finally Babylon's being judged. Finally, that evil empire, and really in Scripture, Babylon does embody evil. Babylon just keeps being used as the symbol of evil and opposition to God. Finally, Babylon has been judged. Babylon is going down, and that's a good thing as far as Israel is concerned. But as we look at the story, as we think about it in relation to our own lives, as you think about it not just at an historical level, but at a personal level, the message is far more confronting. Because what this story reveals to us is that God is a judge. What we see in this story is an example of the severity of God's judgment coming upon a single king and an empire. But it shows us God is a judge. And the thing is, he's not just a judge of other people. He's not just a judge of foreign nations and ancient kings and kingdoms and empires. He is the judge of us all. That's what Daniel's name reminds us of. The Hebrew name Daniel, it means God is my judge. And it's interesting that the name Daniel in Hebrew is preserved right through the book of Daniel, even though his name is changed to a Babylonian name. We keep hearing about Daniel. We don't know him as Belteshazzar. We know him as Daniel. We know him as his Hebrew name because God wanted to keep in front of us this reality. God is my judge. He's not just the judge of people out there. He is my judge. And it's part of the biblical story. It's part of the Christian truth that God stands as the judge of every single person. We might not like that image. It's not very popular today to talk about God as a judge. We prefer other images. We prefer the image of God as our father. We prefer the image, the Lord is my shepherd. We love the image of God as our counselor and our comforter and our friend. And all of those are biblical images. They're all essential. But alongside those, you cannot escape the fact that the Bible portrays God as a judge. He is the judge of humanity. He is the judge of the world. So we've got to grapple with what that means. You can't avoid it. We've got to wrestle with what does this mean to say God is my judge. And I think the writing on the wall helps us. Those three words... They give us some insight into what it means for God to be a judge and what his judgment looks like. Let's just revisit them, those three words. Let's think about them now in relation to our lives. Mene, numbered. Every one of our lives are numbered. All of our days are numbered, right? Our days on this earth, we are mortal beings. They are numbered. Doesn't, you can buy the best anti-aging cream in the world. Your days are still numbered. That You might live into your 90s. You might live past 100. You might get the letter from the queen. All your days may be cut tragically short, but every one of us our days are numbered. And sooner or later, we are going to pass from this life and we are going to find ourselves standing before the judgment throne of God. Again, that may not be a comfortable thought for you, but this is the biblical reality. We will stand before God as our judge one day. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter. You may be a Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, humanist, whatever. You don't know. I'm not sure what I am. doesn't matter. You will. Everyone will one day stand before the judgment seat of God. Whether or not you believe that doesn't change the fact that is true. Whether or not you like that thought doesn't change the fact that is the rock-solid reality of what is going to happen when we leave this world, when we, when we end this life. We will stand before the judgment seat of God. Numbered. Our days are numbered. And that means that the second word is also true, tekel, we will be weighed. Our lives are going to be weighed on the scales of God's justice. Now, this is where it gets real. 
This is not a comforting thought, that one day every one of us, in a sense, we're all in Belshazzar's shoes here. It's not good enough to go, well, he was a blasphemous king. Look at what he did. How idolatrous. We will all one day stand in Belshazzar's shoes and we will all have our lives weighed by God on the scales of justice. And so the question is, what is the basis of that judgment? What is the basis against which God is going to judge us? And the answer that comes back to us from Scripture is the basis of God's judgment is His own holiness. God's own holiness, His own righteous nature, that's the basis of God's judgment. I heard a Christian speaker talking about this a little while ago, and he was talking about how he often has conversations with random people, I think on planes that he's sitting next to, and he talks to them about this. And he says to them, uh, think about a scale from zero to 100. It kind of represents morality and how good a person you are. And he says, where would you place yourself on the scale? Zero being utterly evil, no good in you at all. 100 being absolutely morally perfect. Where would you put yourself? And he said it's surprising the number of people that choose the 60s. Something about the 60s. People want to be in the 60s. You know, it's like you, know, you don't want to talk yourself up too much. You don't want to, you know, 80s, 90s, that just sounds arrogant. But at the same time, people don't want to go below 50. You don't know what's below 50. People don't want to go down there, so they kind of like 60 sort of seems comfortable. You know, it's like, I'm probably in the 60s somewhere. And then he says to them, now, I once had the opportunity to uh, meet Mother Teresa, and I asked her this question. And you know where she put herself? She put herself in the 30s. Now, would you like to revise your answer? <laughs> and, pe- and then it's a bit of a quandary, isn't it? Because what are you going to do? You don't want to say you're better than Mother Teresa. If you stay in the 60s and she's in the 30s, How's that going to look for you? So then people sort of think, oh, what am I going to do? And he said, generally what happens then is people come in about the 20s. 20s kind of seems about the place to go after that because obviously you don't want to go higher than Mother Teresa, but you don't want to go single digits. Single digits is dangerous. We don't know what's down there. So people kind of come in in the 20s. And he uses this just to describe the fallacy of just you know comparing ourselves to one another or comparing ourselves to great people with this kind of relative benchmark that keeps on shifting. But this is what we do. I think we do this without even thinking about it. We compare ourselves to each other. We kind of measure our goodness or our spiritual growth or whatever it is relative to each other. And we look around the room, and you look around the room today, and you can see some people, and you think, well, I'm a bit better than them. I mean, I know some of the stuff he's struggling with, right? I know his kids, you know? I mean, I know what's going on over there. There's some problems there. So I'm doing a bit better than him, but I'm not as good as her. You know, the spiritual giant over here. Wow, she has got it together. She is awesome. She's like a spiritual ninja. I don't have that going on, but I'm kind of in the middle of the pack. And I think we generally just want to be in the middle of the pack. As long as we're in the herd, you know, spiritually speaking, as long as I'm just doing okay, it's okay if there's a few people in front of me, but I just don't want to drift too far back then I'm okay. And all the time, we're just weighing ourselves next to each other. We're weighing ourselves relative to each other. And the Bible says, hang on a minute, you're not weighed relative to another person. You are weighed relative to God. God is 100. What does that make you? It makes all of us zeros. Every one of us is zeros compared to God. I'm I'm sorry if this is bruising your ego. This is the reality of the biblical picture that God is at 100. If we're weighed next to Him, all of us are found wanting. I mean, we are all Belshazzar here. You know, every one of us comes up so, and not just a little bit short compared to God, infinitely, immeasurably short. We, this is why the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just a little bit. We fall infinitely short. 
of the holiness and the glory and the righteousness of God. Compared to Him, there is no good in us at all. Compared to Him, even our righteous deeds, the Bible says, are like filthy rags compared to God. And we need to get that standard of judgment clear in our heads so that we feel the weight of our own sinfulness before God. I know it's not a pleasant thought, but it's important that we do that, that we recognize our sinfulness in the eyes of a holy God. And therefore, that's not good news. One more bit of bad news for you is the third word means divided. And if we are found wanting at the final judgment, which every one of us will be, then the unfortunate consequence is we stand to be separated from God. We stand to be divided from Him and spend eternity alienated from God, separated from His presence, isolated from the new heavens and the new earth, which He will bring about. That's the reality the Bible describes as hell. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Aren't you glad? I mean, aren't you glad that today you chose to bring your friend along? And because you said to them, Sure, community church, it's a place we're not judgmental. We just, we're God's a God of love, and that's all we talk about. And then you got here, and today's the judgment day, you know. Today we're talking about the judgment of God. But the reality, you know, there's good news coming, right? I mean, you know, there's good news around the corner here. But let me say this we need to feel the weight of the bad news before we get to the good news. Unless we really appreciate the problem of sin that we all stand guilty before God and we stand to face that consequence of eternal judgment, far worse, in fact, than Belshazzar did. We face eternal separation from God. Unless we can recognize how deep that pit is that we're in, you'll never really hear the good news. You'll never really appreciate it as the good news it is. You've got to really hear the bad news first and then you receive that good news as the gospel, as the good news that it really is. But there is good news because God has not left us in that place. God has not left us in that place of judgment. He could have. God could have left us condemned before the judgment seat of God, but He didn't do that. Instead, God has found a solution to our guilt. He's found a solution and it's an extraordinary solution that God himself has taken on our judgment. And he's done this by sending Jesus. The theologian Karl Barth has a beautiful phrase for describing Jesus. He describes him as the judged judge. I think that's great. The judged judge. It says two things about Jesus. Firstly, it says he's the judge. Jesus is the judge. Jesus shares in the nature of God. He's the one. He's the judge of the universe. He's the one before whom we will one day stand to give an account for our lives. But Christ has become judged for us. The judge of the universe has become judged in our place. What Jesus has done when he went to the cross, when he died on the cross, Jesus became Belshazzar. Jesus became Belshazzar. He fulfilled the story. Jesus' days were numbered. His life was cut short. He only lasted 33 years. And then Jesus was weighed on the scales of God's judgment. And in and of himself, of course, he was innocent. He was the only innocent, holy person, truly holy person who has ever lived. But on the cross, the Father placed all of our sin upon Christ so that he took our guilt upon himself. Jesus took upon himself all of our sin all of our idolatries, all of our greed, all of our blasphemies, all of our selfishness, all the ways in which we have transgressed God, Jesus took all that upon himself and he felt the weight of the judgment of God because he was weighed and on the cross he was found wanting. Not because he was imperfect in himself, but because he carried our sin, because he carried your sin, he carried your guilt and so Christ was found wanting. 
on the cross. And so, Parson, he was separated. He was separated from the Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cry of an abandoned man. Jesus was separated from the Father, and he died a desolate, abandoned, God-forsaken man, separated from the Father, taking the weight of the judgment of God upon himself, taking the weight of the wrath, the righteous anger of God, poured out upon the innocent Son of God. He took that on himself, and he took it to the grave, and he died carrying that for us so that we wouldn't have to bear it any longer. That's the good news. Jesus took it upon himself, took the weight of God's judgment upon himself so you and I wouldn't have to carry it, so we could be free, that we could be free from the sentence that our sin deserves, the sentence that we have earned of eternal separation from God was taken by Christ so we wouldn't have to bear it. Now that means you're still one day going to die and you're still going to face judgment. And we're still, our days are still numbered. We're still going to be weighed on the scales of God's judgment. But here's now what's going to happen. When, we, when you and I face judgment before the, the judgment seat of God, we will look up and we will look into the eyes of the judge and we will see that it's Jesus. That's the difference. Is that we will now look into the eyes of this judge and we will recognize that's the crucified man. That's the crucified and risen Jesus. He's the one who went to the cross for me. This is why the fact that God is our judge is actually good news. Because if someone else was our judge, we'd be in trouble. Some other God was our judge, we would be in real trouble. But our God, our judge is Jesus. The very same God who has paid the price for our sin and taken the sentence for our guilt and become a curse for us. He's our judge. So when we stand before Christ at the final judgment, if we belong to Jesus, not if we're a good or bad person, but if we belong to Jesus, if we've trusted him in faith, we'll hear him say, yes, you're a sinful person. Yes, you've been weighed on the scales and you've been found wanting, but your sentence has been paid. I've paid your sentence. The punishment was upon me, so now you can be free. You're, you're acquitted. You're free. Sentence is paid and you can now enter into the new heavens and the new earth and spend eternity in the presence of Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's why ultimately this idea of God as our judge, it's a sobering idea. It's a sobering reality. It should fill us with a, with a reverence toward God. But it's actually incredibly good news because Christ has become judged for us so that we are no longer condemned and we stand in the freedom of grace. So how do we respond to this then in our lives? This picture of God as our judge, it's a very real part of the biblical story. How do we respond? Well, let me just say two things briefly. Firstly, if you're not a Christian, this picture of God as our judge should lead you to run into the arms of Jesus. That's what it should do. I'm not trying to preach hellfire and brimstone. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. This is not supposed to be fear-based stuff. This is not scare tactics. But it's simply, I'm trying to be as faithful as I can to the way the Scriptures describe God as our judge. And the good news for you is that Jesus has paid your sentence and you simply need to receive that forgiveness into your life. Receive His grace into your life. Trust Him with your life. Commit your life to Him. And that invitation of eternal life is there and it is yours. And you can take hold of that today. You can run into the arms of Jesus and be free from the judgment of God, from the consequences of God's judgment. And if you want to talk about that, if you want to step into that relationship today, I'd love to talk with you about that. Love to pray with you about that. But let me say this to you if you're a Christian. 
How do we as Christians respond to this picture of God as our judge? We need to come back to the central, central truth in the Bible. It's in Romans 8, chapter 1. You don't need to turn there, just listen to this. Romans 8, 1 is this truth that so many of us need to get into our hearts. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is amazing the way that so many Christians who have been forgiven by God, who have been freed from the consequences of God's judgment, still live under condemnation and still live with this lingering sense of guilt in their lives and still live feeling bad about themselves, feeling unworthy, feeling awful, feeling like they cannot do enough to please God, still living out of guilt, still living out of shame, still living out of fear. And it's such a tragedy because Christ has died to bring that to an end. Christ has died so you wouldn't have to live out of that place anymore, so that you could live out of freedom. But I think there's so many Christians just still weighed down by guilt, just suffering and buckling under this oppressive burden of guilt that we don't need to be carrying anymore. And it may be guilt because of something in your past that you've done, and maybe there genuinely is something that you've done, and it's, it's this terrible thing, and you just cannot escape it. doesn't matter how many times you've confessed it. Doesn't matter how many times you've asked for God's forgiveness. Doesn't matter how many times you've tried to make restitution. It just hangs over your life. It will not go away. The guilt will not leave you. It may be that you're stuck in some pattern of living now. It may be a very present thing. You're in an addiction. You're in a compulsive kind of behavior. And that is just spiraling you into guilt after guilt after guilt. Every time you fall, every time you relapse, every time you stumble, just the guilt just washes over you again and you just can't get free of it. Maybe for you it's just this kind of smell of guilt in your life. One writer talks about how a lot of people just have this sense of a smell of guilt. They kind of just have this lingering smell of guilt in their life. It's kind of a vague thing. You don't quite know where it's coming from, but you just kind of have this stench of guilt in your life. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you are feeling this. And the problem is that when you feel that general sense of guilt, what happens is it sets off a search and you start running an inventory of your life trying to figure out where the guilt's coming from. It's like trying to track down a bad smell. And you kind of run this inventory. What are all the things that could be generating this guilt? I'm feeling guilty. Where's it coming from? And you're going back over your past. And you're going back just over the last 24 hours. And you're trying to figure out, why am I feeling guilty? Maybe it's this thing. Maybe I haven't said sorry enough for that. Maybe that was just too bad. Maybe God hasn't forgiven me enough for that. Maybe I haven't felt bad enough about that thing yet. Maybe it's this other thing. And you just live constantly running this inventory of your life. And of course, all it does is make you feel worse. All it does is continue to compound the guilt that you're already feeling. But you feel like, if I feel guilty, there must be a source. And so I'm just going to have to spend my life trying to find the source of this lingering guilt. So many people, I think, are living in that space. And yet, the Scripture tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to tell you today, if you're living in that place, if you're living under guilt, you need to come back to this verse and make this the mantra of your life. I mean, you need to commit that verse to memory, but not just commit it to memory. I mean, you need to speak it to yourself. You need to get up every morning and remind yourself of the good news. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if that's you, if you're in Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, that is true for you. Sometimes you've got to say it out loud. Sometimes it helps to verbalize this. And you might feel a bit silly doing it, but speak it out loud. Say that verse out loud. You're speaking it to your soul. You're speaking it to your emotions that are being carried in a different direction, but you're speaking this truth into your own heart. Therefore, there is no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know how hard it is to get that. I mean, we know this in our head, but it's hard getting this into our heart, isn't it? Getting this into our bones, really living out of that place. So you make that scripture the mantra of your life, and then here's what you need to do. Find as many other ways of reinforcing the same truth as you can. So find some other scriptures. There's plenty of other scriptures that speak the same thing. There is no condemnation for you. You no longer stand under the judgment of God. Like the scripture we read out earlier from from Isaiah 53, he has taken our punishment upon himself. By his wounds we are healed. Surround yourself with the scriptures that you need to speak the truth that you need to hear. Uh, Find some music. I find often music and songs just have a way of getting these truths into our bones in a way that just the spoken word doesn't. So find some worship songs, find some Christian music that reinforces that same idea that you are free, that you are forgiven. You don't need to feel guilty anymore because Christ has taken your guilt away. Uh, We sung that song, Jesus Paid It All. I've asked Grant to do it again over communion, just to allow us the time to soak in that reality that Jesus has paid it all. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he's washed it. He's washed it white as snow. Find some music. Make it your mission to get a playlist of songs that keep on reinforcing that same idea in a whole lot of different ways. Find some images. For some people, this is very powerful. Find an image that speaks that truth to you in pictures. I've found one of my favorite paintings is Rembrandt's uh, Return of the Prodigal Son. It's a beautiful depiction of that parable of the prodigal son and that moment when the son returns and the father just places his hands on the shoulders of the son. And what you're seeing there is this reenactment of Romans 8.1. The son is experiencing this fact that there is no condemnation for him. Yes, he's been prodigal. Yes, he's been reckless. Yes, he's blown all his father's money. Yes, he deserves judgment. But the father says, my son, you were lost and now you're alive. You were lost and now you're found. You were dead, now you're alive. Come and let's feast. He welcomes him in without a hint of judgment. That's no condemnation. Grab that image on Google Images. Make it your wallpaper and come back to it and look at it and remind yourself, I am that son. I am that daughter. I live within the embrace of the Father and he has called me his beloved. And that's where I am. I don't need to live out of this guilt anymore. I don't need to live out of this sense of shame. Jesus has freed me from all that. Find other people in your life that can speak the same thing to you. If you've got a lingering sense of guilt in your life, share it with some people, some trusted friends, and say, look, I'm struggling with this. I need you to speak some truth into my life. Can I ask you to pray that God would just take the sense of guilt from me? Because it's not coming from God. I mean, there's a genuine type of guilt. I'd call it conviction. When we've genuinely done something wrong, But conviction drives us to the cross. Conviction drives us to confess our sin to God and then receive His grace afresh. But if that sense of guilt lingers after you have confessed that sin, that's not conviction anymore. That's just guilt. And Jesus has dealt with that guilt on the cross, so you don't need to carry it anymore. Find other people that can speak encouragement to you on this, that can pray for you. Sometimes it's helpful just to have someone pray God's grace into your life. Sometimes that's part of the ministry we want to provide for each other. But find as many ways as you can. If you are someone living under the burden of guilt, but you are a Christ follower, 
Jesus has paid for your sin. You don't need to live out of that place anymore. You can begin a journey out of guilt and towards freedom. It's going to be small steps. I'm not going to tell you that tomorrow morning you'll wake up and you'll feel no guilt at all. But as you take these steps and you find creative ways of reinforcing the truth of Romans 8.1 in your life, over time, God will pour his healing grace into your life and begin to free you from that guilt that you are trapped in, that bondage of guilt. So God is our judge, and that's part of the biblical story, but it's good news, and we've got to come to see it as good news. It's a serious reality, and we should, in one sense, tremble before a holy God filled with reverence and worship him because he is the judge on the throne of the universe. But as we look at that judge, we see the judge is none other than Jesus. And that's what makes the difference for us. The judge is the crucified Jesus who has taken our sin, who has taken our condemnation, who has borne our guilt, and he has taken it away. He's carried it to the grave, so we no longer need to carry it at all. So let's reverence God as our judge. Let's take that part of the biblical story seriously because we see it it in the story in Daniel 5. But let's celebrate that reality that the judge has been judged for us so that we don't have to pay the sentence Christ has already paid it. And let's live in the freedom of grace and forgiveness that flows out of that all the days of our lives. Amen? Well, let's pray. Jesus, we just want to thank you for the cross. And Jesus, at the cross, we see the ugliness of our sin. We see the full extent of our sin before, before you, God. And we confess sometimes we lose sight of that and we trivialize our sin and we think that it's not a serious thing. It's just, it's minor. But God, we acknowledge that our sin is deadly serious in your eyes. But God, we want to thank you that as we look at the cross, as we think about Jesus hanging there and dying for us, we thank you that even though our sin was exposed there, our sin was also judged there. And the sentence fell on Christ so that it does not need to fall on us. And I want to pray, God, now for any person in this room today and anyone listening to this message who is just weighed down by guilt in their life, just feels that lingering sense of guilt, whether it's specific or just general. God, I want to pray that you would set them free. God, I want to pray that that truth, that there is no condemnation anymore, For those who are in Christ Jesus, I want to pray that today is a day when they can grasp that truth more fully. I pray that you would press those words on their heart and press them into their soul, that those words would get in more than they have in the past. We put up so many barriers to this, God. But help us to accept that we are accepted. Help us to truly accept this great reality that we are forgiven that we no longer stand condemned. We thank you for that amazing truth. We pray that you'd lead us into that place of freedom and help us to live out of grace every day of our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.